Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for being with us to uh, launch the James Madison program uh, lectures for uh, this year. And I'm delighted to have Professor Berkowitz uh, with us to uh, launch us. But before introducing our very distinguished uh, guest, let me uh, mention a couple of events that will be coming up in the Madison program and we're very, very excited about. Uh, we will be inaugurating the Herbert W. Vaughn Lecture on America's Founding Principles, which will be our major uh, annual endowed uh, fall lecture. And the very first one will be uh, held this October the 11th. That's next Monday, this coming Monday. And I'm delighted to report that we will have Judge Michael McConnell from the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit who will be coming to give the Vaughn Lecture on virtue, republicanism, and disestablishment of religion at the founding. Professor uh, Judge McConnell is not only a distinguished uh, jurist, but he is a leading uh, scholar of the First Amendment, uh, and particularly of the First Amendment religion clauses or clause, uh, having uh, taught for many years at the University of Chicago and then at the University of Utah and having published uh, leading articles uh, in the field. Uh, I uh, also want to uh, invite you all, uh, in addition to inviting you to that, to invite you to a conference, a major conference that we're going to be having, October 22nd and 23rd, so in just a couple of weeks. And the title of the conference is How Naked a Public Square, Reconsidering the Place of Religion in American uh, Public Life. With uh, so much focus on religion and politics uh, these days, we're delighted to be hosting that conference uh, at this time, and we will be uh, bringing in some of the leading scholars in the field, as well as on, on drawing on some uh, very distinguished local uh, talent. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. Uh, will be with us. Uh, Father Richard John Newhouse, whose uh, book, The Naked Public Square, is uh, uh, being celebrated in this uh, conference. It was published 20 uh, years ago. Uh, uh, Provost Eisgruber, Chris uh, Eisgruber, Stephen Macedo, uh, Eddie Gloud from our religion department, a number of Princeton scholars will also be uh, participating uh, in most cases responding to our distinguished uh, visitors. So I hope that you will uh, attend those uh, events. They are very exciting. We're very much looking forward to them and you would be very welcome. Uh, now I have the pleasure of introducing uh, a very eminent uh, scholar and a dear friend. Peter Berkowitz teaches at George Mason University School of Law and is a fellow, a fellow of the Hoover Institution of Stanford uh, University. He is also a founding co-director of the Jerusalem Program on Constitutional Government and serves as a, key, a senior consultant uh, to the President's Council on Bioethics, on which I myself have the pleasure to serve. Uh, Peter holds both a JD and a PhD uh, from Yale. His PhD was in political uh, science, uh, and an MA in philosophy from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, we were also at Swarthmore College together as undergraduates. Peter is the author of uh, Virtue in the Making of Modern uh, Liberalism, which was published uh, by Princeton University Press in the New Forum Book Series in 19. 99, and also author of the very influential Nietzsche, The Ethics of an Immoralist, which was published by Harvard University Press in 1995. He's the editor of Never a Matter of Indifference, Sustaining Virtue in a Free Republic, which was published by uh, Hoover Institution Press in 2003. He's written on a wide variety of topics uh, in political theory, not only in the leading uh, law reviews and uh, philosophical and political science journals, but also in popular forums such as the Atlantic Monthly, the Boston Globe, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Critical Review, First Things, Jerusalem Post, New York Review of Books, and so forth and uh, so on. Uh, he has a current project which is uh, editing two companion uh, volumes for the Hoover Institution Press, Varieties of Progressivism in America and for Varieties of Conservatism in America, and that just about covers it, I uh, suppose, since you've got both. 
uh, as well as a volume uh, that assesses the Supreme Court's Hamdi, Padilla, and Guantanamo Bay decisions, and that will be coming out under the title Terrorism, the Laws of War, and the Constitution, Debating the Enemy Combatant Detention uh, uh, Cases. He's at work on two books of his own, The Liberal Spirit in America, which describes our liberalism and shows what is necessary to conserve it, and Rediscovering Liberalism, which collects uh, his more scholarly essays. A scholar of extraordinary breadth as well as depth, please join me in welcoming Professor Peter Berkowitz. Well, I, uh, I need to thank the James Madison program and Professor George in particular. And um, since, uh, since Ravi mentioned Swarthmore, I'm going to take the occasion to, uh, to mention how I first heard uh, Professor George's name. When I was a freshman, the, uh, the upperclassmen spoke about this legendary figure and a legendary band, bluegrass band, called Ravi George and Friends. And it sort of loomed over my imagination <laughs> for all my years at Swarthmore. Um, it was many years after that that, uh, that I had the honor to meet Professor George. But I, I also want to mention um, an event at Swarthmore that uh, had a big impact on me and in a way informs uh, the paper I'm going to give this afternoon. When I was, I suppose, a junior, I read an essay, uh, actually a book review. It was a review of Robert Paul Wolf's book, The Poverty of Liberalism. Uh, the review was called The Poverty of Liberalism. It was written by Alistair McIntyre before he wrote After Virtue. And McIntyre argued that uh, R.P. Wolf's book, The Poverty of Liberalism, did nothing so much as reveal the poverty of, the cri of criticisms of liberalism uh, in American Anglo-Saxon world. And McIntyre made his point in this way. He said that Wolf's book reveals that you don't have any real criticisms of liberalism in America. What you have are uh, not only liberal liberals, but liberal radicals and liberal conservatives. And I remember reading that as a junior in college and thinking this was tremendously illuminating and tremendously appalling. It was appalling that the critics of liberalism couldn't find their way to a perspective beyond the liberal perspective to criticize liberalism. Well, a lot of time has passed, and I, I continue to find McIntyre's remark uh, quite illuminating, that in America we tend to have not only liberal liberals, but liberal radicals, liberal conservatives, by which he meant sharing presuppositions crucial to uh, liberal sensibility. Uh, so I still find that illuminating, but these days, instead of finding it appalling, I find it uh, an occasion and an opportunity, uh, hence my paper this afternoon. Okay. Um, it's neither startling nor controversial to contend that in the United States, constitutional law serves as a critical battleground in the struggle over freedom's moral and political meaning. It is, however, another matter to assess the impact of the battleground on the battle, to clarify the current balance of power, and to anticipate the character and consequences of the battles to come. I design the American Constitution as the supreme law of the land because it's a liberal constitution, one whose first purpose is to protect individual freedom. The supreme law of the land avoids taking a, a stand on the supreme or most fundamental issues. For example, the Constitution doesn't aim to lay down the law on the proper catalog of virtues or on the content of happiness or on the path to salvation. 
But that's not because the Constitution or the political philosophy that underlies it supposes that virtue is irrelevant, that happiness has no content, or that faith and salvation is a snare and a delusion. Rather, and by design, the Constitution establishes a framework within which we as a people can maintain a society where each has the liberty to pursue, consistent with the like liberty for others, virtue, happiness, and salvation, and the way each sees fit, as most fitting. This constitutional framework consists of the enumeration of governmental powers and the elaboration of individual rights. The enumeration of powers and the elaboration of rights establishes minimum requirements and imposes outer boundaries on state action and personal conduct. And so doing the Constitution largely, not entirely, but to a remarkable degree, leaves substantive judgments about morals and policy to individuals and democratic politics. Accordingly, as Alexander Bickel dryly observed almost a half century ago in the least dangerous branch, to say of some law or action or institution that it's constitutional is not very high praise. For the Constitution permits much from those in office as well as those not in office that's foolish, vulgar, degrading. Yet the enshrinement in the supreme law of the land of the scope of individual freedom Minimum requirements, outer boundaries, has consequences. It cannot but color and give direction to our moral life, exercising a gravitational push and pull on our habits and our hopes, giving shape to our sense of what is possible and what's necessary, informing our understanding of what we owe others and what we owe ourselves. To recognize the role of, the const of constitutional law in defining the contours of our freedom takes nothing away from the formative role played by other factors, economic life, popular culture, friendship, love and family, diplomacy and war, religious faith, and faith in reason. Our opinions about freedom, as well as our capacities to enjoy its blessings and maintain its material and moral preconditions, are formed by many forces. But the supreme law of the land is of special interest. It establishes authoritative limits by proclaiming, backed by the coercive power of the state, what is forbidden, what's permitted, what's required, the Constitution creates background conditions for and sets a tone that reverberates throughout all spheres of our lives. By and large, since Marbury versus Madison, it's been a settled matter that the supreme law of the land assigns the Supreme Court principal responsibility for saying authoritatively what the supreme law of the land is. Yet, the vast majority of the cases that the court decides each year involve relatively technical issues, which, when they are noticed at all by the public at large, do not, beyond the parties involved, excite much enthusiasm or cause much consternation. Nor do these cases have much discernible impact on how, on a daily basis, most of us experience or think about freedom. Of those cases that, because of the morally and politically fraught issues at stake, do capture the public's attention, a preponderance arise under the 14th Amendment. And the most morally and politically fraught of these concern abortion, which involves a contest over the interpretation of the 14th Amendment's due process clause, and affirmative action, which involves a contest over the interpretation of the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause. In the not too distant future, perhaps same-sex marriage too may come before the court. If it does, it may well involve a contest over the interpretation of both clauses. Now, it could not have been intended by its post-Civil War era drafters and ratifiers, but in retrospect, it's understandable. It's understandable 
that the 14th Amendment's grand and vague clauses would in time provide a key vehicle for transforming, transforming the meaning of, meaning of freedom under the Constitution, or if you prefer, accommodating under the Constitution the transformation of freedom's social and political meaning among the people. As you know, the Due Process Clause provides that no state, that quote, shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the Equal Protection Clause provides that no state shall, quote, deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, close quote. For historical reasons, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which is part of the same sentence from Section 1 of the Amendment, has largely become dead letter. Now, the original and overriding purpose of both the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses was to make the federal government responsible for protecting the rights of blacks against infringement by state governments. But the 14th Amendment differed in a crucial respect from the other two Reconstruction-era amendments. The 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery, referred to the historical injustice that provoked it. And the 15th Amendment, which secured the right to vote, referred to race as one of the forbidden grounds for denying the vote. In contrast, the 14th Amendment dealt with the challenge of making ex-slaves and all blacks full citizens by reaffirming universal guarantees implicit in the original Constitution and by making the federal government responsible for ensuring compliance by the states with those universal guarantees. On their face, the universal guarantees embodied in the right to due process and the right to equal protection are strictly formal. They do no more than promise that everywhere in the United States the ideal of the rule of law will apply equally to all. In fact, the 14th Amendment affirms that the state may deprive you of life, liberty, or property, provided that it does so consistent with the appropriate legal process. The 14th Amendment affirms that whatever protections the law confers and liabilities imposes, they apply equally to all citizens. Formal, not substantive. And yet, despite the apparent formality of the due process and equal protection clauses, there are plausible arguments also built into the very language for deriving particular rights or substance from them. Indeed, the Supreme Court has embraced these arguments, both in the Lochner era uh, 100 years ago and in our era, the era of Roe and Bakke. The arguments for deriving substance from form is largely the same in both cases. In regard to due process, it is argued that no process could be due, which is to say appropriate or fair, which denied certain individual liberties the court regarded as essential, essential, unthink, essential to the very idea of freedom under law. Similarly, the argument for deriving substance, that is to say the right to special or unequal treatment from the promise of equal protection, maintains that in a society scarred by discrimination, it's sometimes necessary, inescapable, that we treat individuals who belong to disadvantaged racial, ethnic, even gender groups unequally in order to bring about a condition in which all can enjoy the equal protection of the laws. In fact, the courts clearly decided that the due process clause and equal protection clauses do contain a substantive component. What precisely is that substance? In deciding, the Supreme Court, justice, Supreme Court justices have had no alternative but to fall back on their opinions, both considered and inarticulate, about the core, meeting, core meanings of freedom and equality. And thus, through their judicial decisions, the court takes sides on and enshrines in the supreme law of the land 
answers to, or maybe better, sizable fragments of answers to some of the great moral questions of the day. So today, as I talk about abortion, affirmative action, same-sex marriage, I want to emphasize four large lessons about freedom that one can take from how the court has dealt with, deals with abortion, affirmative action, and same-sex, and may deal with same-sex marriage. I'll state them now briefly. First, equality and freedom is the coin of the constitutional realm. The central debates over the constitutionality of abortion, affirmative action, gay marriage do not, generally speaking, pit liberal principles or values on one side against some other kinds of principles or values on the other. Rather, what these contests involve is a confrontation between competing interpretations of the practical requirements of constitutionally protected freedom, if you wish, a conservative interpretation of liberalism and a progressive interpretation of liberalism. Second, our freedom is inherently unstable, liberal freedom, because there's no fixed stopping point to the demand for it, and progress in enlarging freedom's legally protected realm provides new reasons for further enlargement. Third, progress in enlarging freedom's realm creates new threats, including the temptation to adopt illiberal and anti-democratic measures in freedom's name, to the preservation of the moral and material order that the peaceful enjoyment and wise exercise of our freedom requires. And fourth, understanding these essential features of our freedom is critical to the task of conserving our freedoms. So, now let me give some texture to these theses by talking about, first about abortion. Um, much of what I'm going to say is familiar, but I hope to draw unfamiliar lessons from it, or at least um, uh, provoke unfamiliar reactions to the familiar recounting. All right, since the Supreme Court's landmark 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade, the public debate over abortion has been full of sound and fury. Movement leaders on both sides have seen their own positions as morally unassailable and have accused the other side of sanctioning terrible crimes. No other single issue excites as much controversy in the Senate's consideration of presidential nominees to the federal bench. Yet even as, this, as the debate rages on and as the federal courts have become a principal arena in which they are conducted, the nation seems quietly to have reached a settlement. Indeed, a solid consensus attested to by the uh, uh, political science opinion data. A solid consensus has emerged. What is this consensus? It affirms that abortion is a complicated moral choice involving two goods, the autonomy of the woman and the life of the fetus or unborn child. Early on in a pregnancy, that choice is best left to the woman and those whom she loves and trusts and chooses to consult. Subsequently, as the pregnancy advances, the choice is increasingly a matter for state regulation to protect the life of the fetus or unborn child. The structure of the settlement and the solidity of the consensus reflect imperatives, I want to suggest, arising from our ideas, our liberal ideas, about freedom. To be sure, to be sure we refer to pro-choicers and pro-lifers, yet both camps, generally and for the most part, are emphatically pro-personal freedom. Proponents of a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy defend the personal freedom of women in the form of women's interest in maintaining control over their bodies and their lives. Women, women, it's argued, cannot, can enjoy neither freedom to live their lives as they see fit nor equality in the marketplace and in politics if they must bear the burden of an unwanted pregnancy. 
But conservative opponents of abortion also often invoke personal freedom. They emphasize the rights of the unborn child, who they contend is a person in the morally relevant sense of the term, and whose rights to life they maintain supersede a mother's liberty interest in controlling her body and determining the shape of her future. Alternatively, conservatives invoke the freedom connected to self-government, arguing that justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, with no foundation in constitutional text, structure, or history, have invented abortion rights, thereby imperiously deciding a critical moral question that the Constitution leaves to the free choice of the people. Powerful conservative voices do oppose abortion on religious grounds out of the belief that the unborn child is an embodied soul, that is, that the human embryo, even its earliest stages of development, is already a unique human being. But when they become activists and participants in the public debate, the pronounced tendency of conservative opponents of abortion is to make their case in the language of freedom. Moreover, both parties to the debate show that in practice, at least when it comes to other issues, they do respect the other side's principle and embrace it as their own. In their opposition to the death penalty, for example, pro-choicers proclaim their respect for human life and their unwillingness to permit the state, even in response to monstrous crimes, to extinguish it. And pro-lifers demonstrate their respect for the principle of choice and their commitment to limited government, an essential purpose of which, after all, is to preserve for individuals the decisions, uh, for individuals, freedom in the decisions about matters that mean most to them. Now, this court's 73-road decision captured something of the complexity of the moral challenge that properly, that one might expect would arise within a liberal framework. That challenge consists in balancing the claims of women's freedom with the right to life of the fetus or unborn child. In Roe, the court held that within the limits, the Constitution protects a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy. Though the legal reasoning in the case has since been subject to severe criticism, even at this point by law professors who are proponents of abortion rights, what I want to suggest here is that the underlying moral reasoning has carried the day. It's with us today. It's with us down to the present moment. According to the court, the claims of women's autonomy prevail during the first trimester, in which a woman may terminate her pregnancy at will. In the second trimester, the state's interest in the life of the developing fetus or unborn child, the court held, is sufficient to justify reasonable restrictions. And in the third trimester, as the fetus or unborn child becomes viable outside the mother's womb, the state's interest in protecting its life can take clear precedence over the mother's wishes. Now, the court's holding reflected a recognition that the legal question turned on whether the fetus or unborn child was a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Or rather, the legal question would turn on whether the fetus or unborn child was a person if a reasonable answer were available. Remember, the Due Process Clause provides that no, no state shall deny to any person life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So if the fetus or unborn child was a person in the relevant sense, then he or she was entitled to constitutional protection. In his opinion for the majority, however, Justice Blackmun sought to dodge the decisive question. He claimed that where so many moralists, philosophers, and theologians had failed to resolve the issue of what defines a person, judges had no choice but to set the question aside and find a ruling that did not depend upon the definition of a person. However, in so claiming, Blackmun betrayed a serious misunderstanding of the logic of his own holding. In fact, his opinion did not set aside the question of what defines a person, 
but rather disguised the answer he propounded. For the trimester framework was based on the idea of viability, and the idea of viability did not so much render analysis of the definition of a person irrelevant to the legal question as provide a proxy definition. How so? By viability, the court meant the ability of the fetus or unborn child to survive outside the mother's womb. The more the fetus or unborn child possesses that ability, according to Justice Blackmun's opinion, the stronger is its claim to 14th Amendment protection, which is to say the more it should be considered a he or she. Nevertheless, defining personhood in terms of viability is unstable, as Justice Conroe pointed out six years after Roe. Viability is in part a function of technology, and technological developments continually push the point of viability back toward conception. But here's the point I want to emphasize. Its, ba its flaws as a basis for constitutional compromise do not change the function that the idea of viability was intended to serve, or that it accurately, or that it was an accurate reflection of powerful and competing moral intuitions about freedom, which are with us today. What are these moral intuitions? First, I repeat, in a crucial respect, the fetus or unborn child is a member of the human family and so endowed with rights. Second, that the fetus or unborn child is at the same time different in morally relevant ways, so that early on in its development, the rights of the mother prevailed. And third, the further the fetus or unborn child develops, the more the morally relevant difference between it, or he and she, and a person fade. While it has been modified by subsequent decisions, the Roe framework and the profound moral ambivalences to which it gives expression still define the constitutional settlement. In sum, the Roe settlement is well entrenched, certainly in public opinion, but it would be a mistake to interpret the constitutional law on abortion as any sort of clear-cut victory for liberalism or the liberal point of view. And that's not because of the restrictions on abortion that have remained in place, that were put in place in the 1980s and the 1990s. In fact, to judge by the most recent important decision on this, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, the Supreme Court is actually inclined to elevate the principle of choice further at the, exp at ex the expense of the principle of life. How so? Even as the court's holding in Casey reaffirmed the compromise of principles embodied in Roe, dicta in the plurality opinion, pushed for an expansion in the boundaries of the realm governed by individual choice. I quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. These are by now familiar words, but they contain a very radical constitutional idea. This assertion should not be confused with the venerable and indispensable notions of liberty of thought and discussion. But what the court appeared to be saying in Casey was that each individual not only had a constitutionally protected right to, think, to determine for himself or herself what constituted a person, to come to an opinion about what constituted a person, but each individual had a constitutionally protected right to have that opinion given legal effect. That's quite different. If this view were accepted, then abortion would have to be permitted whenever individual women concluded for themselves whatever the stage of pregnancy, that the life within their womb did not count as a rights-bearing human being. Now, even without this extravagant claim on behalf of individual choice, there is reason to worry, from a liberal point of view, that too great an emphasis on autonomy, the ideal of autonomy, 
will exact toll on our ability to maintain a moral climate conducive to personal freedom. Why? Well, the more we enshrine in our supreme law arguments and attitudes that deny personhood or the semblance of personhood to the fetus or unborn child, arguments that make the legal determination of personhood a function of the private judgment of individuals, the more the court's abortion decisions foster a climate of opinion that encourages the notion of the violability, the violability of human life. This, though, is not merely an inevitable trade-off in the securing of the principle of individual choice. Teaching the violability of human life weakens respect for individual choice, which, after all, is rooted in the idea of a common and inviolable humanity. The more our humanity is seen as negotiable, the more respect for it is understood to be subject to the private judgments or choices of others, the more precarious is the precondition for making any choices. That's life. Now, one implication of this line of argument is that the progress in freedom is that progress in freedom may not just involve the overthrowing of tradition, which we associate with liberalism from the time of the Enlightenment. But progress in freedom may also involve... Progress in freedom may also involve the undermining of the conditions for the conserving of freedom, those conditions, paradoxically, that are crucial to conserving the freedoms that we have already won. Now, the law of abortion, I think, is not unique in this respect. So, too, in regard to affirmative action and arguments about same-sex marriage, the law prefers to promote progress, understood as expanding the realm of autonomy or individual choice, it prefers promoting progress and freedom to controlling the social costs of freedom. The law thereby endangers the conditions for conserving our freedom. Let me make the case with respect to affirmative action and the Equal Protection Clause. <clears throat> Last year, the Supreme Court struck down the University of Michigan's undergraduate affirmative action program, Gretz v. Bollinger, while upholding in Grutter v. Bollinger, Michigan, University of Michigan Law School's affirmative action program. Progressive proponents of affirmative action could be pleased. The court held that the promotion of diversity was a goal of such overriding importance that it justified a university taking race into account as one among a variety of other relevant considerations in selecting students. Conservative opponents of, of affirmative action could also take solace. The court reaffirmed that quotas were unconstitutional. Yet in striking a balance, the court tilted notably in favor of the progressive interpretation of liberalism. Interestingly, the cases provoked little outrage. This was uh, late spring, early summer, 2003. To be sure, taken together, they amounted to a victory for proponents of affirmative action. So long as universities were prepared to invest the time and energy that more individualized review of applicants would require, few schools would be prevented by the court's ruling from achieving the kind of diversity in admissions they sought. But what explains the moderate response on the right? Well, I think it's in part because the public is, in fact, closely divided on the question of affirmative action. But the particular character of the public divide is also important. The divide is not only between opponents and proponents of affirmative action. The divide is also within opponents and within proponents of affirmative action. Many conservative opponents of affirmative action accept that the massive injustices inflicted upon blacks in this country by the American people, slavery, Jim Crow, private racial animus, do create some sort of public obligation to remedy the effects of past and present discrimination. At the same time, many progressive proponents of affirmative action do recognize 
the potential for race-based policies to, pro to polarize the public, to perpetuate racial stereotypes, and to sanction, to give public sanction to unequal treatment under the law. The reason for the mutual recognition, conservative recognition of what's compelling in the progressive case, progressive recognition what's compelling in the conservative case, is that the key alternatives in the debate both flow easily, both flow easily from liberalism's fundamental pre premise, equality and freedom, which both sides share. In what sense? Well, briefly, a familiar point. The typical argument of proponents of affirmative action, the state must take race into account in admissions or to create a university community that reaps the benefits of diversity as a liberal provenance. In making this argument, they can draw upon a powerful moral conviction. Equality and freedom is an achievement that in practice depends upon the state's lifting up those who have been trampled down by discriminatory state action or have fallen so far behind that they cannot catch up without benevolent government programs. And when critics argue that university admissions should be colorblind, they too draw upon another powerful moral conviction, that equality and freedom means that one should be judged as an individual, not as a member of a group defined by morally irrelevant features such as skin color. There is no way that saying one or the other of these arguments draws upon an institution and intuition that is more fundamental to the liberal spirit. Indeed, the tension between these two respectable liberal opinions is at the crux of the court's 78 Bakke decision, which set the terms of the legal debate. And like Roe, whatever you think about the legal reasoning, what really happened in Bakke is it captured the dominant moral reasoning or the moral problem. To honor the claims of equality, the four more progressive justices in Bakke would have permitted the University of California Davis Medical School to set strict quotas in order to enroll a substantial number of black students. At the same time, and also in the name of equality, the four more conservative justices would have forbidden all use of race in admissions. That part of his opinion that many came to think of as the holding of Bakke, but which in fact received only his vote, Justice Powell argued the quotas were unconstitutional. In this, he agreed with the four more conservative justices. At the same time, and consistent with the views of the more progressive justices, Justice Powell insisted that universities could use race as one factor among many in evaluating candidates for admission. Legally, Justice Powell's opinion that universities' interest in diversity justified the use of race as a factor in admissions did not appear to be binding, but politically exerted an, an enormous influence. It suggested that the proper legal resolution of the question was one that found a way to honor not one, but two liberal imperatives in this context, which is somewhat ironic, the more conservative imperative to treat individuals equally without regard to race, and the more progressive imperative to take action to achieve equality for members of a race that have been denied it by law and custom. At the same time, Bakke paved the way for the triumph of the progressive uh, interpretation over the more conservative interpretation. Now, Justice Powell's compromise gave rise to difficult questions of application. Some revolved around ends. What legislative goals appropriately justified classifications based upon the deeply suspect classification of race? And some questions revolved around means. How to distinguish legitimate from illegitimate uses of race by government? Subsequently, in cases dealing with state and national set-asides for construction workers, for minority contractors, 
The court provided answers to these questions about ends and these questions about means. Because of the evils connected to judging individuals on the basis of their race, a majority concluded that state action that takes race into account must be subject to the strictest scrutiny, the most severe test. Why? I quote now from the city of Richmond v. Cross in 1989. The purpose of strict scrutiny is to smoke out illegitimate uses of race by assuring that the legislative body is pursuing a goal important enough to warrant use of a highly suspect tool. The test also ensures that the means chosen fit this compelling goal so closely that there is little or no possibility that the motive for the classification was illegitimate racial prejudice or stereotype. Classifying on the basis of race is extremely dangerous. We must have extremely good reasons for doing it and must be extremely careful in doing it. Moreover, in Shaw v. Reno, 1993, this was a case that struck down a bizarrely shaped state voting district that appeared to have no other justification than to create a majority black district. Justice O'Connor emphasized the court's concern about policies that presuppose and policies that reinforce, I quote now, the perception that members of the same racial group, regardless of their age, education, economic status, or community in which they live, think alike, share the same political interests, and will prefer the same candidates at the polls. Now, up to Grutter, which upheld affirmative action in the University of Michigan's uh, um, admissions program, law school's admissions program. The problem in Grutter is that while attending to apply its precedents and establish principles faithfully, the court deviated dramatically from them, particularly in opposition, particularly its opposition to uh, its established opposition to policies that promote racial stereotypes. First, the court eviscerated its clearly articulated strict scrutiny test for racial classifications. In Grutter, without searching inquiry, indeed with next to no inquiry, and thus without addressing evidence to the contrary examining, examined in the dissenting opinions, Justice O'Connor's majority opinion accepted at face value the University of Michigan Law School's representation that it did not use race as an overriding factor in admissions and that the school did not effectively employ a quota. She didn't consider it. Second, in the process of sanctioning the promotion of diversity as a compelling state interest, the court abandoned its concern about suspect classifications that would enforce racial stereotypes. Indeed, by embracing diversity as a compelling state interest of sufficient importance to warrant the use of racial classifications, the court went well beyond ignoring the danger of racial stereotyping. The court gave constitutional sanction to such stereotyping. For the court said it was proper, indeed it served a compelling state interest, for universities to treat black skin as a proxy for a certain set of experiences and as a distinctive set of opinions about the world. Now, the court's reasoning in Grutter was strained. That straining suggests the suppression of subterranean tensions. And the majority's legal reasoning in Grutter is embarrassingly strained. So why did it carry the day? Let me suggest one factor. It's because of the powerful appeal of the progressive interpretation of liberal principles, which calls for interpreting equality so as to require government to take steps to promote a more inclusive politics. Let me, let me uh, illustrate further in connection to same-sex marriage. The Supreme Court uh, has not yet ruled on same-sex marriage. 
No cases on the question, as everyone knows, have come before it. None as yet are wending their way through the federal courts. Yet should a challenge make it through, there's some chance that the court will strike down the restriction of marriage to a man and a woman and do so for reasons similar to that given by the Massachusetts Supreme Court last fall and for reasons given in Lawrence v. Texas, a case from uh, 2003 in which the court invalidated Texas uh, statutes criminalizing homosexual sodomy. Now please understand, it's not in my view that conservatives lack a respectable case against same-sex marriage, but it is that given the peel and spread of the progressive interpretation of freedom in our country, the case, I think, will not be seen as compelling enough to override the demands of equality of the demands of equal protection, the demands of equality and freedom under the law. Well, what's the best conservative case against gay marriage? It goes like this. Marriage has long been at risk and is, and is the most vital institution in society for the formation of character in children and the transmission of values to the next generation. By separating marriage from parenting and by implicitly rejecting the idea of the natural complementarity of the sexes, same-sex marriage will further undermine the institution of marriage and so further undermine the key institution for formation of character, for training us, among other things, to enjoy the blessings of freedom. Now, for the purposes of argument, let's say that conservatives are right about the consequences of same-sex marriage. Well, in the first place, conservatives hardly need to be reminded there are always countervailing considerations. One such consideration is the mistake of treating the Constitution, the supreme law of the land, as an instrument of social policy. Another is the natural momentum in our diverse society of the arguments rooted in the freedom to choose and equality before the law for conferring upon same-sex couples, as the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts put it, quote, the protections, benefits, and obligations of civil marriage, close quote. But there's another closely related but less obvious consideration. The law generally does not prohibit practices on the grounds that they harm marriage, especially if the practice can be seen as enhancing equality and freedom. Just for a moment, consider the variety of practices which conservatives have persuasively argued do harm marriage, but which by and large conservatives properly do not seek to prohibit. For example, there are good conservative reasons to believe that the invention of a cheap and reliable birth control pill which hit the market in the mid-1960s has weakened marriage. The pill greatly reduces a key cost associated with premarital sex, unwanted pregnancy, and thus it removes a powerful inducement to marriage, the promise of regularly available sex, by making sex more readily available because much less bound up with unintended consequences before marriage. And nobody wants the state to take action to curb use of the pill. Cohabitation before marriage, conservatives argue, also weakens marriage. Living together, especially attractive to the young, mobile, and ambitious, normalizes the idea that marriage is one lifestyle among many, an expression of personal commitment rather than a sacred obligation. While lamenting this development, conservatives do not wish to pass laws to restrict it. No-fault divorce also appears from a conservative perspective to diminish respect for the sanctity of marriage. It further fosters the idea that marriage is optional, a contract like all other contracts, which one can break at will, incurring thereby only the liability, as in most breaches of contract, for the monetary damages awarded by a court. 
But most conservatives agree that it's too late in the day to return to a more demanding regime. The abolition of the civil action, the abolition of the civil action for alienation of affection contributes to the devaluation of marriage. Conducting an affair with another person's spouse no longer represents, as it once did, an injury cognizable by law. It's more akin to stealing another person's best friend. Neither society as a whole nor any significant subset of conservatives clamor for changes in the law of torts to make seducers of spouses legal li legally liable for the destruction of a marriage. Moreover, the traditional foundation of marriage has been shaken by the movement over the last 40 years of women out of the home and into the workplace. Opportunities in professional life make women less financially dependent upon men, so less in need of marriage as a source of economic security. Professional life also provides women with more chance to experiment romantically and so more tempted to proceed in life without marriage's constraints. Yet conservatives these days are more likely to defend the choice of those women who decide to stay at home than they are to argue against women who have chosen to work. In so doing, conservatives affirm and indeed expand the meaning of the liberal principle of choice. Now suppose you believe that the birth control pill, cohabitation before marriage, no-fault divorce, laxness concerning adultery, the movement of women out of the home and into the workplace, all undermine marriage, as many conservatives do. And suppose you're unwilling to support legislation to prohibit these practices because of the cost to individual freedom, an unwillingness many conservatives share. How, can, how then can you single out same-sex marriage for legal prohibitions? One answer is in contrast to same-sex marriage, the aforementioned practices do not involve formal state approval, either symbolically or through the conferring of financial benefits. They call only for the state to mind its own business. In contrast, proponents of gay marriage seek both the symbolic legitimation and the financial benefits that the law confers through marriage. Yet, as I suggested at the beginning of this talk, in minding its own business in regard to all other aspects of intimate relations, the state makes a powerful statement of moral and political principle. The organization of intimate relations is a matter of personal choice. Now that bigotry against gays is on the run, express legal liabilities have been lifted, mostly lifted, popular culture has increasingly embraced gays, and the question of same-sex marriage has been brought out into the open and into focus by vigorous public debate. The admittedly speculative harms that critics associate with same-sex marriage will I predict, in more and more people's minds, be outweighed by the rock-solid principle of respect for individual choice, particularly in matters relating to love and the family, especially between consulting adults where physical harm is not an issue. While majorities in the United States at this moment may not yet be ready for same-sex marriage, I suspect larger majorities will oppose legislation that smacks, rightly or wrongly, of anti-gay animus. By the way, none of this is to approve of the 4-3 decision of the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. The Supreme Judicial Court imperiously denied any rational basis whatsoever to legislation restricting marriage to a man and a woman. But unlike the prohibitions on interracial marriage properly struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1967 in Loving v. Virginia, the prohibition on gay marriage, as the Massachusetts dissenters argued, certainly is connected to at least valid public policy questions, which is all that was necessary for the, uh, for the restriction to be upheld. 
The color of one's skin has no bearing on the essential purpose of marriage, never has, never will. But gay marriage raises concerns about parenting, child-rearing, and the structure of the family that lie at the very heart of marriage's purpose. Questions, I say, questions. Nevertheless, having said that, because of the force of arguments about individual freedom and equality before the law in a free society, because of the power with which they resonate, other state legislatures will likely, I believe, do on their own what the Massachusetts legislature um, is being forced to do under the compulsion of its highest court. They will answer those policy questions in favor of granting same-sex couples protections, benefits, and obligations of civil marriage. Let me conclude. As I said also at the outset, the language of freedom is the coin of the realm in American moral and political life. No getting around that. All of the great moral questions of the day eventually get translated into its terms. And the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause and Equal Protection Clause provide an all but irresistible invitation from the Constitution to incorporate opinions about our most difficult moral con controversies into the fabric of the supreme law of the land. In regard to abortion and affirmative action, the Supreme Court has accepted the invitation and the ground is being laid in lower courts and state courts in the political process for equal protection arguments to persuade a majority of the pu public, not a problem, <laughs> uh, a majority of the public, if not uh, the court, to support gay marriage. A distinct pattern has emerged. On the touchstone issues, the court has given a substance to our equality and freedom that has extended the protected sphere of individual choice and has expanded the range of individuals who enjoy uh, this extended sphere of choice. And these decisions have prepared the way for further extension and expansion. The court has done so in the face of respectable alternative interpretations of the substance of equality and freedom. Those alternative interpretations that stress the social costs of freedom's expansion and the danger to the material and moral preconditions for maintaining a society of free individuals. Now, both interpretations of the substance of equality and freedom have roots, I've been suggesting, in the liberal spirit. One, which focuses on releasing individuals from fetters in all their forms, as well as that which concentrates on the need to prepare individuals for the responsibilities of freedom. Yet in the contest between these two competing in interpretations of what freedom requires, the liberal spirit will incline us to prefer measures that expand the realm of individual autonomy and promote a more, more egalitarian society over those that seek to contain the social costs of those measures and to conserve the background conditions that keep autonomy from deteriorating into anarchy. Why the preference, why the inclination toward the progressive interpretation of freedom as opposed to the conservative interpretation? Well, there are several reasons for this preference, rooted in the nature of the liberal spirit and sewn into the fabric of human nature. First, from the outset, the liberal tradition defines the appropriate grounds for limiting freedom in essentially formal terms. It's the way it was done in the liberal tradition. Only the protection against infringements on individual rights, where those rights are understood in terms of life, liberty, and property, provide a ground for the state to restrict individual freedom. 
Of course, the constraints imposed by religion, tradition, custom, public opinion, and taboo do not immediately vanish with the advent of the liberal spirit, with the rise of the liberal tradition. As Tocqueville observed of America in the 1830s, at that time, religious belief prevented Americans from entertaining many thoughts and pursuing many fancies that were permitted to them by their freedom. But with each new victory won by freedom, religious belief slackens, morals relax, institutions once regarded as sacred or permanent increasingly appear artificial and alterable. The previously unthinkable becomes routine, and restraints that it seemed indispensable to civilized life fall to legal challenge. Indeed, advancing the formal goal of autonomy becomes identified with the very liberty and equality that is protected by the 14th Amendment. The substance of the 14th Amendment becomes autonomy. To be sure, over the centuries, this dynamic has in many ways brought the reality of American life more in line with the promise of American life. Yet, the liberal antipathy toward all but formal constraints on freedom does not abolish society's need to conserve freedom's moral and material preconditions. This antipathy just makes it extremely difficult to defend those constraints as legal requirements. Second, the liberal spirit tends to convert compassion, the quality of compassion, into a commanding virtue. It takes our natural sympathy for those who suffer and concentrates it on what it regards as the decisive moral fact, our equality and freedom. Because others are no different in the crucial moral respect, they cannot deserve their deprivations. Indeed, their deprivations make a mockery of the equality and freedom we share. So liberal compassion compels us to list law in the task of lifting up others and to overlook how this lifting up may restrict or impair the freedom of others. Third, the liberal spirit makes a certain kind of resentment respectable. This is related to our compassion. Liberal spirit stirs up a natural envy for those who have more by constantly reinforcing the idea that in relation to the decisive moral fact, nobody's better than anybody else. Yet because of the uneven distribution of gifts of nature and character, physical strength and beauty, creativity and intelligence, character, pluck and resilience, equal opportunity naturally produces unequal results. Indeed, because in a free society, individual accomplishment can be rewarded generously, indeed extravagantly. Formal freedom results in a large and sometimes truly enormous difference in wealth, fame, and power. When social standing and power to influence of others dwarf one's own, equality before the law ceases to feel like equality. So the law is lifted not only to lift up the disadvantages, disadvantaged, but to lower the outstanding. Fourth, the liberal spirit intensifies our desire for instant gratification. When freedom is conceived of as release from authority, the here and now, along with the material and visible, take precedence over the far away and the future, the spiritual and the speculative. For the far away and the future, the spiritual and the speculative, are readily invoked by authorities to, to circumscribe the wants, needs, and desires we feel most immediately. This focus on the here and now, encouraged by the liberal spirit, exacerbates the human inclination to prefer a politics that promises concrete gain in the near term over a politics that holds out the hope of avoidance of pain or loss over the long term, and to embrace measures that expand choice and promote egalitarianism. For these 
this politics tends to do so directly, immediately, and visibly. Whereas laws designed to control the costs of the expansion of equality and freedom tend to invoke harms that are indirect, delayed, and hypothetical. So, focusing our attention on form, softening us with compassion, angering us with resentment, preoccupying us with the near term, the liberal spirit inclines us to an interpretation of inequality and freedom that promotes the ideal of autonomy against all, over all other ideals. And one sees this, I've wanted to suggest, in the court's interpretation of the requirements of due process and the equal protection of the laws. What I wanted to suggest is all of these decisions, in fact, have a liberal warrant. What I also want to suggest is that all these decisions should provoke liberal anxieties, or they should in a well-balanced liberal spirit. What sort of anxieties? I've alluded to them. I'll state them briefly now and conclude. The respect for choice that underlies the abortion right is compromised by the determination to deny the personhood of the fetus or unborn child. The respect for individuals that informs the constitutional right to conduct affirmative action programs is weakened by, their redu by the reduction of these programs of individuals to groups. And the respect for choice in individuals that will justify striking down as unconstitutional laws that deny individuals of the same sex from marrying will further shake the ideal of marriage, which always has been connected to the biological realities of parenthood and provides the cornerstone of the institution, the family, that plays the largest role by far in training individuals for freedom. Well, as Alexander Bicko might have reminded us, to say that a practice is constitutional is not the last word on the subject. It is, the part of the, it is a part of the wisdom of our Constitution to give us wide scope to examine the social costs of progress and freedom. And the blessings of freedom cannot be conserved without attending to them. I'll stop there. Well, thank you, Professor Berkowitz, for that splendid uh, lecture. It's a classic uh, Berkowitz presentation. Uh, I disagree with 50% of it, and my liberal <laughs> friends will disagree with the other 50%. So uh, it's Just always. As long as everyone's angry. Everyone's angry. So. Now, uh, I want to uh, say a special word of welcome to the uh, group of uh, Somerset County school teachers who are with us today. We've got a group of 25 Somerset County uh, school teachers who are here participating in the James Madison Seminar on Teaching American History, and I'm delighted uh, to have you here. In a moment, I'm going to open the floor uh, for, for Q&A and discussion. I'm sure Peter would be uh, happy to engage you, uh, and I hope that the school teachers will feel free to uh, join in. But as is our custom and practice in the Madison program, before opening it uh, to general discussion, we reserve uh, a few minutes at the beginning uh, for our uh, undergraduate and graduate students to have priority. So if we have any uh, questions from our uh, students, the floor is now yours. Uh, yes, Michael Watson.
Yes. Um, uh, in, in theory, in theory, sure, there's no contradiction, as I understand in the liberal tradition, um, there's no problem in having, a, uh, in having a court authorized to review legislation and, and acts of states and strike it down when it's, uh, when it's inconsistent with the Constitution. Now, we could obviously, we could talk about particular cases. If in, do I believe that in particular cases, is there an argument to be had that in particular cases the court has gone too far? has uh, arrogated to itself responsibilities that, in effect, sap the democratic energies of the people? Um, sure. In many, uh, in, there are plenty of cases in which that's so. But I don't think that um, the practice of just judicial review is somehow inimical to, uh, to the liberalism uh, about which I've been speaking. But second, uh, you raise a good point. I didn't mean to... Um, make what I do regard as a mistake to, uh, this is a kind of mistake that I encountered um, actually every minute of the day when I was in law school. You would, um, in law school, you, you could get the impression that there are, there is really only, there are not three co-equal branches of government. There's this gigantic trunk called the Supreme Court. There are these tiny little offshoots which you can barely see with a uh, magnifying glass, and that's the executive branch and uh, the legislative branch. And so I, I didn't mean to be suggesting or favoring some notion of government by the judiciary. Um, my point was simply illustrative in this sense. As it's happened in our politics, on these issues, one finds in the Supreme Court's decision has become our constitutional law, um, actually a fair summary of... Uh, of a clash between competing moral intuitions that's out there uh, in the public. And, and in fact, you could see there, if you weren't so inclined, an implicit criticism of the court, um, namely that uh, what these opinions are embodying is the clash of competing moral intuitions when what they're supposed to be doing is uh, law. You might also take issue with my formulation there, suggest that, as I also suggested that um, um, Thinking about these difficult moral questions is almost inevitable under the 14th Amendment because of the invitation implicit in the language. Good. Uh, other student questions? Yes, you, sir. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, in when I suggested that uh, conservatism today is liberal conservatism, and uh, am I also uh, am I implying that conservatives today have rejected the the wisdom of Burke and Cicero? Um, no, I was actually engaging in vulgar generalization. Is what I was doing. Um, I didn't mean to remember where you are, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought you might indulge, <laughs> and I do appreciate it. But I, I also appreciate the question, which uh, allows me to call attention to the generalization that was vulgar. There are there are plenty of conservatives. Some are friends of mine who um, not only would be appalled 
by my calling them liberal conservatives, they would persuasively argue that, that in important respects, they're not, they're not that at all. Um, and they would, they would further argue that um, it is the task of conservatives today to uh, not merely preserve our liberalism, preserve our freedom, or preserve it by preserving traditions, by preserving teachings, a sensibility, a spirit that does, in fact, tra transcend the liberal outlook. So, um, uh, so I, I believe that to be more accurate, more accurate formulation. But I also believe that, um, that uh, liberalism tends to liberalize everything it touches. You can see this as a good thing or a bad thing or as a mixed thing. And so conservatives who grow up and live under our um, liberal and democratic constitution uh, tend to have their notions and sensibility liberalized, drawn in a liberal direction willy-nilly. Uh, I, I don't for a minute doubt that there are, uh, just as I don't doubt that uh, on the left, there are people who uh, in their hearts repudiate um, liberal things. Uh, I'm sure that's true. Uh, I'm sure it's true on the right as well. I'm not saying that it's impossible to it's completely impossible to rise above a liberal sensibility under our Constitution. I, I don't believe that for a moment. What I believe is it has a tendency to liberalize uh, opinions, and, it, uh, and empirically, it does send, tend to set, um, set a f up a framework or ground rules in which argument does take place. Uh, other student questions? If not, then the floor is uh, open. Uh, school teachers, uh, students, you're also allowed to raise your hands now. It's not that your chances have been passed. Yes, Professor Patterson. Yes. Well, I'm hamstrung by my irreducibly cheerful personality, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll try to overcome it for the moment. Um, I think what you're actually um, what you're actually pointing to is not that I've gone somehow easier on the legal reasoning, although it's brief here. I think 
or at least I, I certainly didn't mean to be any more charitable to Justice O'Connor's legal reasoning. In fact, she was, or I'll, I'll say it right now, she was obliged, clearly obliged by the precedents to apply a well-known test, which she herself had elaborated in previous cases, called strict scrutiny. Strict scrutiny, as a constitutional matter, requires the court to very carefully examine the reasons that, uh, in this case, the University of Michigan gave for its program and to take nothing on faith. Um, she didn't do that. She said, well, the University of Michigan says everything's hunky-dory here and we're abiding by the law. Good enough for me. As a matter of legal reasoning, this is an outrage. It has pernicious consequences because it enshrines in the supreme law of the land duplicity. Okay? So my, uh, my equanimity, um, pardon? Uh, now you're happy. <laughs> okay. No, there I said it. <laughs> but um, but um, what I uh, I do recognize that the the outcome, the outcome as a moral and political question is a difficult question. As a legal question, I don't think it was. But as a moral political question, uh, I am calmer on it because I I do think that the uh, our tradition, our framework, our politics does give rise to competing moral intuitions on this. And so a soul, an individual who's, um, who had uh, mixed opinions about this matter, that person, I would say, was re responding well to the situation. But the Supreme Court had, you know, in this particular case, um, misconstrued its mission. Okay. Uh, yes, you, sir. I'm sorry. I don't know your name. Go, go ahead. In exile, how, uh, how do you mean in exile? They're making it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, sort of. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's. Um, it's, it has become constrained and weighed down over, over the years by, uh, by a variety of decisions, some of them that I uh, talked about here, in which the legal reasoning is so strained that it simply can't hold up. Roe is an example. I, I report to you a fact. I think uh, um, Dennis and, and Ravi could attest to this. Uh, certainly was true when I was being educated in law school. You couldn't find anybody who would defend the reasoning of Roe v. Wade, not a soul. Now, you could hardly define an individual who would object to the outcome, defending a, a woman's right to turn her pregnancy, but it became the conventional wisdom that this reasoning is atrocious and indefensible. Hence Casey. Hence Casey, <laughs> which takes, takes it to a new level. Now, um, I happen to think that it is a very bad lesson to teach to young lawyers that um, the quality of the reasoning underlying decisions, which is published, which is one of the things that distinguishes the judicial branch from the other two branches. Congress doesn't have to publish an explanation for laws and acts. The president doesn't have to publish an explanation for, um, for the way he implements the laws. Anyway, so the reasoning is what distinguishes them. When the reasoning becomes atrocious and indefensible, that's that... Um, that conveys a very bad lesson to the next generation, which is then taken up and further diffused throughout the law. So in that sense, I do see, uh, I do see bad developments. On, 
on the other hand, it strikes me as extravagant um, and itself a bit misleading to speak about the Constitution uh, in, in exile. When I look around, I still think we, uh, um, we live in a free society and, the, and, the, and commitments that are absolutely critical to our Constitution are in place, are protected, and we're getting on with our business. Exile is too strong. Dr. Mahoney? Yes. About these things, and this somehow is expressive of a liberal spirit. But Well, um, you know, that's, a, that's an empirical challenge. I, I think that, uh, as I su suggest in the talk, that the polling opinion data, if there's, um, if there's one matter which it's pretty clear on, that there is a very large consensus in the country, well over 50 percent, near the 60s, that um, abortion should be actually in the, it's the Clinton administration formulation, uh, legal, safe, and increasingly rare, or in the language of Alan Wolf, a Boston College sociologist, that um, he found that sizable majorities in the country are uh, anti-abortion but pro-choice, meaning they regard abortion as a bad thing, a tragic thing, a sad thing, something you should avoid, but it should be in the last analysis the decision of a woman with uh, restraints that states, states decide upon. Um, so uh, if... Peter, Peter, what is your authority for this? Who uh, are you... Uh, is this Wolf? Uh, this, 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 this is, this is Wolf. You talked to 200 people. Pardon? He also cites po uh, public opinion data on this. I'm pretty yeah, sure in one nation after all. You doubt well, it. Yeah, I doubt it. But anyway, okay. Well, well, no, no. Actually, it does matter. It does matter. If if uh, if I'm if I'm wrong about this, I'm wrong about an important claim. But but just to be clear, at least about what I'm staking the claim on, it that is what I'm staking the claim on. Do you want to come back? Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, sorry. No. Yeah, well, more precise, what I want to say is um, that there is a consensus there, although uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this is what the opinion data shows. But second, that the, um, the inclination to expand autonomy, what, what I want to argue about that is that that inclination is sort of built in. That, uh, especially if you look at our traditions, if you look at it in our history, expanding free, the claims of freedom, expanding the claims, claims of equality, is, is the movement of the, it's like the stock market. There have been moments of backsliding, but generally it's always been up in the direction of more freedom and more equality. Professor Deneen?
She gave you 25 years to do it. <laughs> Take <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. So it's not as if really right. that these are kind of all within this. Yeah. Um, you're right. Um, I, I mostly, I mostly agree that I, uh, I should have been more careful in indicating, I mean, once or twice I gestured at this, but I should have been more careful to indicate that, um, uh, yes, of course, there are, uh, there are conservative people out there, thoughtful, very well-educated people, passionate people, many of whose opinions can't be derived from our liberal tradition, are rooted in traditions that are, I won't call them uh, anti-liberal, but non-liberal, rooted in religious faith, um, rooted in, uh, you have to study a lot to get your opinions rooted in Cicero, but in Cicero, you have to, you have to become college educated, a liberal arts college these days, to have your opinions rooted in Burke. But, um, but yes, uh, you can, it is certainly possible um, and it explains much of our uh, politics, and um, I don't, uh, I appreciate very much the works of uh, the late Christopher Lash, whose writings kind of excavated and brought to the attention of many people a, um, a working class ethic that couldn't possibly be confined or derived from, uh, from what I'm calling the liberal tradition. So what I really should say is something like that, that those views that that nevertheless, under our Constitution, um, I should have emphasized it this way, that the liberal, this liberal framework, these liberal premises are, uh, exert tremendous kind of gravitational force pulling all these views toward the center. Now, to some extent, 
that's good because it seems to me there are some premises, say the natural freedom and equality of all, liberalism's fundamental moral premise. It's tremendous that uh, virtually everybody can begin a debate by affirming this, and we can have debates about what it implies. But when I, I suppose when I was referring to um, those citizens, those thinkers who emphasize, emphasize the social costs of freedom, of course, as a matter of fact, many of those people are people who have had their sensibility shaped by, indeed whose sensibility is constituted by, um, religious belief, by, um, uh, by traditional, by traditional, more traditional, um, uh, by a more traditional moral sensibility. Absolutely. And uh, in some sense, it may, it's, it's more present in the United States today. Many people who, um, uh, whose sensibilities are so defined have a greater voice today. So, um, uh, so yes, I plead guilty to some, some, some inaccuracies in the way I presented it, but I think that I can incorporate into my account this more, uh, th these more refined formulations that you offer. Professor Kirsch? Yeah. Um, I, I suspect that it, uh, well, it's <laughs> a great question. I suspect that it isn't. I, I start from Tocqueville's familiar observation that um, somehow all political questions in the United States have a tendency to resolve themselves into uh, legal or constitutional questions. Um, it happens for us, I think, because um, the truth of the matter is, uh, yes, I'm suggesting that liberalism has a direction, but in the scheme of things, the intellectual and cultural elite is ahead of the majority, and the intellectual and cultural elite is impatient, and it's easier to um, uh, promote its progressive program by persuading nine judges than it is by persuading majorities. But having said that, I also do believe um, and this, by the way, this is an empirical claim, perhaps I'm wrong about this, but it's my sense of things, that, um, that the people are tending in that direction. I mean, this is a very complicated, but we could, uh, we could discuss uh, my reasons for believing that and factors that, uh, that push in the opposite direction. So I, I don't, uh, strictly speaking, no, uh, um, a court-centered politics, I don't think, I don't think it could be derived from liberalism, but in our, but in the particular situation when the intellectual culture leaves way ahead, um, and they at least uh, on the surface don't like monarchy, um, courts are a good way to go, especially since the judges seem to come from the same uh, sphere. Well, that suggests, though, Peter, if you are wrong on the public opinion uh, stuff, it might not be a directionality of liberalism. Uh, it, there may be a, a it might just be elite subordination of popular opinion. Yes, that's yeah. right. Uh, Professor Messina. 
extraordinary to me as well. <laughs> Where's everyone else? Yeah. Right. Well, well, look, I would, um, uh, I suggest that um, uh, in, in trying to think about these larger trends, one, one should not forget um, how our politics was changed by September 11th. I mean, you say over the last 10 years, but over the last 10 years, that takes us back to, uh, to the 1990s, our holiday from history, eight years of, of Clinton hegemony. And if, if I may say so, if it weren't for the abysmal campaign that Al Gore ran, Al Gore would be president right now. So um, uh, there is some accident, I think, in, uh, in Bush having got elected. And then the transformation of our politics by this, uh, this tremendous and terrifying new reality of the war. But I, I go back to some facts. You know, um, it's true. We have a, uh, from my talk, you might not infer that we have a Republican president and a Republican Congress uh, for the moment, and a uh, um, well, the, the, ju the judiciary is actually not, is is actually not so clear. In fact, um, uh, uh, while again I'm uh, I reject the idea of a uh, of a judiciary-centered politics, it can hardly explain everything. It seems it is very instructive to me that. Um, that virtually no public outcry arose after the affirmative action case in 2003. And for that matter, virtually no public outcry arose after, um, uh, after Lawrence v. Texas. And although same-sex marriage is, uh, is occasioning um, some public controversy, it seems to me, from, uh, from the larger point of view, what is truly extraordinary, I think actually mind-boggling, is how quickly same-sex marriage has become regarded by lots of people, by, by many people, so a substantial number of people, as absolutely required by the Constitution, by a significant number of people, uh, more additional people, as a very hard question. And now, you know, so by, still by some people strongly opposed to it. I mean, this is a question that 10 years, you will know the dates more precisely than I, but 10 years, 15 years ago, this is not like slavery, 15 years ago, it hardly occurred to any gay person or lesbian to even occur that I am being deprived of right marriage. It wasn't even part of the imagination. Fifteen years later, it is regarded by wide swaths of the public, not majorities, but by wide swaths, as a self-evident truth. Now, I regard this as a tremendous evidence of an of a, um, unfolding progressive sensibility. I don't know any other way to interpret that. This is one of the most you know, dramatic social revolutions in history, changing this institution. And it's, it's all but, I mean, there are many places, do you know this, where there's a strong consensus 
Princeton University. It's extraordinary. New York, Washington. What, what, what other justification is there? Uh, by the way, I think it's a powerful one. Pardon? Well, fundamental, that, I, yes, I embrace those. The fun, that's what I'm saying. What it boils down to is that the argument, as I understand it, is that it's the two points that you mentioned, which are inseparable. Marriage is a great good, and, uh, and it is a great good that, all, that should be open to all, including... Uh, including same-sex couples. But that, I mean, there's no way around. That, that flows from a certain understanding of equality which refuses to take substantive differences in account. I, I don't oppose it, but it seems to me it, it is evidence for the opinion that you suggested was an unserious opinion that we live in an age when the progressive spirit is indeed moving forward. I, 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 I never spoke about completeness and, uh, and, and lack, of, uh, lack of a critical spirit. What I spoke about was a tendency. And one, of my, one piece of evidence is the tremendous revolution in sensibility in the last 15 years in the question of, uh, of, um, of same-sex marriage. It seems to me a, a revolution in our social norms. Exactly. Um, to the extent that I um, propounded a doctrine of historical ine inevitability, it was unintentional. I don't accept the end of history thesis, which has two aspects. One, that something like liberalism is bound to triumph. That's not what I meant to say. Or, and I also didn't mean to say that something like liberalism, in the spirit of Kojev and Hegel and more recently Fukuyama, I also didn't mean to say that... Um, now that it's come on the scene, become manifest, reasonable people 
cannot but assent to its reasonableness. These are not my views. What I meant to suggest is that um, at this thing that I call the liberal spirit, which is embodied by our Constitution, has a powerful thrust. But there are, but you point to um, one set of factors, sort of internal to liberalism. Could its own, in some ways, its own excesses promote a reaction against it? Sure. And by the way, there's a new book out by, um, by a progressive named Philip Lohman, who's uh, called The Empty Cradle, who speaks about how drastically declining birth rates, now in Europe and the United States, are going to produce a situation essentially when pro in which progressives are not um, uh, pro reproducing themselves and more conservative people are. Um, yeah, all these things are possible, but also there are external blows. There would be, one could imagine a, co a collapse of the world economy. One could imagine a terrible attack on the homeland, which would, um, which would bring about policies, a sensibility, and a spirit that was not uh, progressive in the sense that would arrest the developments that I'm talking about. That's for sure. So again, I do not mean to suggest historical inevitability. What I meant to suggest is that internal to the liberal spirit are principles, opinions, ideas, sentiments that incline us in a particular direction. But that direct direction can certainly uh, be reversed for all the reasons you mentioned and more. I'm afraid we have time only for one more question. And let me uh, recognize Michael Lewis to close this off. I'm uh, oh, sorry, Mike Fraser. And now we seem to be engaging in economic um, So I'm wondering where the As many conservatives would point out to you, as many conservatives would point out to you, don't touch the lights. As many, <laughs> as many conservatives would point out to you, uh, spending has increased under, under, this, uh, under this president. Uh, if I can tell a story quickly, I remember in 1995, um, in, you may remember in January 1995, uh, Republicans entered Congress. They had taken over the, the House led by Newt Gingrich. Bill Clinton gave a State of the Union address in which he said the era of big government is over. A conservative magazine, the Weekly Standard, ran a cover with an unflattering photograph of Clinton, and over it, we win, with Clinton saying the era of big government is over. I attended a lecture, uh, mostly of conservatives. The lecture was given by uh, John de Ulio, former Princeton, formerly of Princeton University, who was working in Washington at the time. And this crowd of conservatives were mostly in a very happy mood. The president declared the era of big government is over. 
And this and De Ulio came two or three weeks after the State of the Union address, early February. And De Ulio began this way. He said, you know, I've been speaking to all of you before the remarks began. You're very happy. You're very pleased with yourself. You're gloating. Even President Clinton says the era of big government is over. Well, I'm coming from Washington, and I come bearing a message. The era of big government is not over. As far as the eye can see, you're going to be living in the era of big, gov the era of big government. Now, let's hope, he said, there's going to be, continue to be a debate, but the debate will mostly be about the, the, um, the, the rate at which we accelerate spending, not really cutting. That was 1995, and very little that's happened since 1995. And again, barring, uh, barring catastrophes, uh, I suspect that's right. We will continue to have a debate, and it's healthy uh, in the country between conservatives uh, and progressives about how much the federal government should spend and uh, the things for which it should spend money. But it's, uh, to me... And the progressivity, yes, we'll, we'll continue to, uh, we will continue to argue that, about the progressivity of the tax system. But that the government has a large responsibility for, um, for, for the poor, for the sick, uh, for those who can't care for themselves, in any number of social welfare programs that have been put in place since the New Deal. I, I do find it very hard to believe, as much as you may think, the present, one may think the present president and the present administration are heartless and don't care or anti-progressive. I find it very difficult to imagine, barring catastrophe, the de debate won't be about how much or how little, as opposed to a radical transformation in the idea that the government does have important responsibility in, in social security, in health care for the poor, in health care for the elderly, and so on. Uh, uh, nothing that I've seen, I can't point to anything that suggests a radical revision in this understanding of the role of government. Well, uh, let me, uh, before thanking uh, our distinguished guests, thank all of you for coming uh, this evening. Uh, let me uh, invite you to join us for a little reception uh, out in the hallway. And now please uh, uh, join me in thanking uh, Professor Berkowitz for keeping us all angry.